hello. Welcome to the Getting Through Podcast, where insightful discussions meet transformative ideas. This episode is one that is going to be potentially emotional for me, your humble host. I have the chance to speak with uh, one of the most amazing people that I have had uh, the chance to meet in my life, Gretchen Witt, who I met under incredibly challenging circumstances, but all these years later, we stay connected, trying to make a difference together in all different ways, shapes, and uh, forms. Gretchen, welcome to the Getting Through Podcast. It is literally the perfect name for a podcast, the perfect name for your podcast, too. (laughs) Yeah, I got to say, I didn't hire any really expensive marketing firm to come up with this. I tell the story that as I got the gift of time in the spring of last year, coming up on almost a year, I started to jump back in and go back to work right away after being this gift of a severance package, which is the second time this has happened for me in 10 years. So which is kind of nice. People pay you to not work. I don't know if that means I'm really bad or that means I'm just so good they want to take me off the market for a period of time. But it is really kind of funny that this happened to me twice now. And I'm coming up with what I wanted to do after I tried to get that job. And obviously, when you're used to working your whole entire life and then you have the gift of time, you don't really know what to do with that gift, or at least I don't. A couple of things didn't work out. And then I sat down and reread Caring Bridge. Uh, site, which was incredibly deep and emotional on a gazillion different levels. And I said to myself, man, how the hell did we get through that? And I thought, huh, maybe that's the name of the book. And then I thought, well, gee, I don't think through like the regular normal spelling of through makes a lot of sense. And I thought about the through traffic sign that you drive down the highway and it's spelled T-H-R-U, mostly because it doesn't fit on the sign. (laughs) I think that's the reason. But I thought, man, this really resonates with me. And then here we are almost a year later, book will be out in a couple months, created this podcast, went out and talked to some people about getting through and in the mindset that at least I believe you need to get through life's worst things, most challenging things. It kind of has become a life of its own. It's kind of crazy, (laughs) to be honest. Well, how many times did you and I both hear, I don't know how you do it and how, how, how do you get through it? Mm -hmm. I I mean, we've heard that a gazillion times. Yeah. A gazillion times. Or how do you stay so close to it still? Don't you just want to avoid it? And many men, myself included, compartmentalize things and kind of put that in a box over there, never to be opened again or opened by avoiding it by it by any means. And I think... In this particular case, I haven't really compared this experience of of Kyle's illness and passing. I don't know quite why. I guess the good Lord doesn't want me to is kind of what I kind of ground myself in. I think you're right. I think it's, I think that's a common phrase you get and a common like, just how do you live? How do you get up in the morning? How do you do the things you do? And God knows you're such a great example of that even more than I am. Maybe you can spend a little bit of time talking to our audience about who Gretchen is and a little bit about your personal background, your career, whatever you'd be willing to share would be great. Absolutely. You and I met when Kyle came to Memorial Sloan Kettering for treatment. I don't know how long we had been in treatment and what that time span was. But I felt at the time when we met that we were more of the veterans, that we had been at it longer Mm -hmm. than you guys had. 
And my son, Liam, and your adorable son, Kyle, were dealing with the same cancer diagnosis, which is a really tough one. If you had a deck of cards of cancer diagnoses that you could receive, this is not the card that you would want to pull. But there was just something about Liam and there was something about Kyle that they gravitated towards each other. And the other thing about Liam and Kyle is that I never thought that they weren't going to make it. They were just such special kids that I thought that's got to be a sign. Like clearly these kids are going to make it. And what I love the most about Kyle is that he impacted everybody who he met. Everybody Mm -hmm. loved Kyle. And (laughs) and it was the same with Liam too. Like everybody loved Liam. And the two of them were great together because- they were exponentially stronger when the two of them were together. And Kyle, there were days that he was not having it, not all that thrilled to be where he was. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that you could never take away from either of them is that they were little boys and they acted like little boys and they were adorable together. I remember the fast friendship they were able to create in the most trying of circumstances for anyone to go through. Nothing is normal. Nothing is normal. (laughs) As normal as being a friend with another, one of their peers, somebody who's their age, trying to talk about anything other than the situation that they're in and, and what was going on around them. And I thought it was just such an amazing thing to watch the two of them because they led by example and they continued to live. And that for me is how I got through the time when Liam was battling, which was, it was was a four-year battle, is by continuing to live and continuing to get through what we were trying to get through. Maybe you could share with the audience, Gretchen, like life before Liam's diagnosis, because you're an incredibly accomplished woman. You've done a lot. You did a lot prior to Liam's diagnosis, and then clearly you've taken some of those skills and talents and applied them to after Liam was diagnosed and then forward these so many years later. Maybe you can share a little bit about like that, because I find your story to be really interesting and I know the audience will too. Thank you. I had spent my entire career in communications and had just a really wide range of experiences from working in crisis communications, which was endlessly fascinating. For some reason, I just gravitated. It's just the way that it worked out. I didn't, I didn't intentionally make this happen. I wound up working with a lot of businesses that had something to do with the kitchen and cooking or something related to that, whether it was a food product or whether it was an appliance company, they all kind of had that same theme to them. So at the time that Liam was diagnosed, I was running the PR at a company called OXO Good Grips. And they make those kitchen tools with the fat black handles that are comfortable to hold. And Because of that, I had pretty strong relationships with not only the editorial world, but also had met a lot of chefs along the way. So here I am, a mom of two young kids. I have Liam, who is two and a half, and his sister, Ella, who's 20 months younger. And when Liam was two and a half, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And on the day that I took him to the doctor, I thought I was taking him in for a well visit. And by the end of the visit, the 
pediatrician handed me three prescriptions. One was for a chest x-ray, one was for an abdominal ultrasound, and one was for a CBC, a complete check his, his blood levels. I thought that Liam was anemic because from a very young age, he decided that he did not like meat. He was an early adapter to becoming <laughs> a vegetarian. So I was like, sure that this must be because he doesn't eat meat and we need to get him some more protein or iron in his diet or that kind of thing. I wound up going to the closest hospital where the pediatrician's office was because it was the only place to go to get these tests done. I walked in, it was towards the end of the day. I handed the prescriptions to a woman who was sitting behind a desk for outpatient services. And she told me that I could get at least one of them done that day, the blood test, but I would not be able to get the other two done. And as she was saying that to me, she looked up at me and I, by the way, I had taken Liam for a doctor's visit because I just sensed that there was something off. Mm. I didn't know what... There was no smoking gun where he had a temperature of 105 or a black eye or, you know, he, he had this intermittent limp, but it would come and go. And he was two and a half. What two and a half year old doesn't have like something that comes and goes. So there was nothing that I could really pinpoint that there was something wrong. I just didn't feel like everything was right. So she looked up at me and there, our eyes locked and she reached up and grabbed my hand and she said, we're going to figure this out. We will get all these tests done today. I don't know what time it's going to be. It's going to be late, but we will get them done today. By nine o'clock that night, I was with Liam and we, he was at that time still in a stroller and I was led to a room that is where x-rays are read. And so there was all these monitors in the room, but uh, everybody was gone at that point in time. So all you could see when you walked in the room was the glow of the monitors. And literally it was like at a central casting and somebody handed a phone to me and the phone receiver was red. And at the Good other God. end of the line, I know it's the craziest thing. At the other end of the line was Liam's pediatrician saying, Gretchen, Liam has an 18 centimeter tumor in his abdomen. We're going to admit him tonight and then figure out what's going on. And that's what started the journey. At that point in time, I thought to myself, my life will never be the same. There will always be the day before mm -hmm. and then the life after you find this news out. And true, my life has never been the same since that day. It, like, you just don't, you, when you have something like that happen, you don't go back. So fast forward, we very quickly realized that the place to go to get treatment for his kind of diagnosis was a hospital in New York City. We wound up going there by ambulance. And then I wound up having a conversation one day with his oncologist. And it was just the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around the fact that I have a two and a half year old who has an oncologist. But what was even harder was learning that cancer is the number one disease killer of kids in the US. The, the cancers kids get are totally different than the cancers adults get. And then that it gets so little funding. And as we're, I'm having a conversation with him, there's a TV screen behind his head, like off in the distance. Um, CNN was on and the reporter was talking about a press conference that was happening at the White House announcing that 
the White House spokesperson was stepping down from his role because of a cancer diagnosis. And I thought to myself, where's the news conference for kids? (laughs) Why is it that kids don't get the same attention that adults do? It was at that moment that things started percolating in my head. And I realized that this was a communications challenge because who wants to think about kids who get cancer? Nobody. But if you don't talk about it, if you don't intro it into the conversation, the dialogue that people are having, how do you ever expect it to change? That's what started the whole process of thinking about how could I introduce this concept of kids who get cancer in a way that wasn't scary, which is what led to the development of cookies for kids' cancer, because everybody likes to talk about good cookies. Mm-hmm. Well, person or it's the actual cookie. And it is the exact antithesis of the feelings that you get when you talk about kids who have cancer. I'm just listening and processing because having the chance to, as you mentioned at the outset, watch Kyle and Liam become friends, and then we became friends. And for the audience out there who's listening to this and saying, oh my God, because I would often, as I got in, as Kyle was diagnosed, similar type of situation, nothing really pinpointed the fact that he had stage four cancer, other than the fact that he was, wasn't feeling well. Now, Kyle was an incredibly religious boy. He told Leslie a year before diagnosis that he was never going to be any bigger as she was tucking him in at night. And Leslie goes, well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus told me that this is the size I'm always going to be and that it's going to be okay. And of course, Leslie's like, no, you're going to be like your father, this big, huge person. And that's how this is going to work. And he's like, nope, it's not going to be that way for me. And, and he said, it's going to be okay. You look at your experience when Liam was diagnosed and you go back to kind of what you know, right? You get into this, I know crisis communications. I know how to put messaging out in such a way that gets people engaged or gets them to understand that, hey, we are in crisis here. I find it so interesting that when you get presented this most of difficult things to have to get through, as we talked about earlier, the name of the podcast and the book, you apply the things that you know, and then you start learning things about yourself that you didn't know. I know when I went through this experience with Kyle, there are things that I didn't know I was going to be able to do that I was forced into doing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because you went through such an arc as you talked about life before the diagnosis, everything changed now you're applying some of your skills and talents to a completely different mission. Cookies is born. How did you make that kind of leap? And because I know it's such an amazing story and how Cookies actually got born over a weekend, I think, if I remember the story right. A little bit. Yeah. I don't know what it was like for you, but in the very beginning when you you have a child who has a very difficult diagnosis and, and you're just trying to figure out how to find the bones in your legs because they feel like they've melted away. Like, how am I going to stand? You feel like you have jello legs. And for me, one of the things that kept me going was thinking about how in the the movie Nemo, Dory says, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And (laughs) there were times that it was so difficult that I would make a deal with myself and be like, okay, okay, okay. I'm just going to try and get through the next five minutes. If I can get through the next five minutes, 
then I can probably make it through the five minutes after that. And so I would look at the clock and I would just watch in five minute increments because things were so difficult at times and things were so tenuous and, and challenging. I literally would have to break life down into five minute increments. I think one of the things that we as human beings have become very comfortable with is being able to make plans in advance because we think we know what's going to happen. And none of us, I mean, Mm -hmm. none of us, we don't know what's going to happen two minutes from now. What was one of the most difficult things for me to learn in the beginning was I wanted to look ahead and I wanted to see the roadmap ahead of me but you can't see the roadmap. And what I realized very quickly was that I either needed to ride the wave, like kind of ride the current in order to be able to make it, or if I kept swimming against it, I was gonna tire myself out and there was no way I was gonna have energy to be a caregiver for my son. But that's a hard lesson to learn. Somebody would call me and say like, hey, do you wanna do so-and-so next week at this time? I'd be like, I can't make that plan. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. Were you a planful person? I mean, I always tell people, especially in the business context, create a plan and God laughs, right? But people want to build plans that are years in advance and somehow not necessarily can't predict the future, obviously, as you mentioned. But were you a planful person before Liam's diagnosis or were you more kind of like take it as it comes? What kind of person were you? I had two children under the age of three, I I had a pretty big job and I was used to constantly, although although, I mean, I was still a fairly new mom, but there's always this constant juggle of trying Mm -hmm. to get it all done and being able to plan things out so that you can fit it all in. What was hard for me is realizing how little control I had over the situation and how there was nothing that really that I could do because other than to live in the immediate and to try and get through the immediate, that's a really hard lesson for anybody to learn. But when you have to learn it in a baptism by fire mm-hmm. moment, then it's even more difficult. But I would imagine like if you're, if you are fighting in the trenches in a war, it's the same kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. you're just trying to get through get through the next five minutes yes. and hopefully if you make it through the next five, then you can make it through the five after that versus thinking about your vacation that you have coming up six months from now or seven months from now. It's lovely to think about that and plan ahead, but there are times that you just need to dial it back and just get through the very immediate. As I thought about writing the book about Kyle's journey and so much of his journey was based in his belief and his faith in something bigger. He was much more faithful. I'm a Roman Catholic, was raised, went to Catholic schools. But when I was done, I really wasn't as committed for a variety of reasons to my faith as I was when I started. And Kyle, for whatever reason, was. And it wasn't because Leslie and I had him in church three times a week. Or, I mean, yes, we went to church. I wouldn't even say we were consistent kind of goers to church. We would go and he was baptized and everything, but he obviously had a much deeper belief in faith that created this level of, I don't know, empathy that he had for others uh, and for us. I mean, more, more as caregivers, I mean, I think like you said earlier, people really loved Kyle because he had such an empathetic and giving soul. I mean, I can remember one time, and this is just out of the blue, but where Liam gave him the Lego candies 
Uh-huh. And you would have thought that Liam gave him gave him the answer to life's riddles. It was he was so thankful and so appreciative of that. And it made me think about how gratitude can get you through the worst of possible things. I mean, yeah. this was just a Lego piece of candy that he was going to eat. And it was going to disappear in two minutes. But again, it was the act of somebody doing something for him. And he never missed an opportunity to make sure that people felt appreciated for whatever it was. His reaction to Liam that day was the same as when my colleagues at Best Buy gave him a 5,000-piece Death Star Lego to build. Like, the biggest possible Lego gift a kid can get is that thing. Uh, He actually gave it to one of his best childhood friends. Hey, Ben, and I wonder if you still have that, because now it's worth like a gazillion dollars. I don't think you can get it anymore. But But that was, Kyle believed in that. And so much of, I feel like, the journey that I've been a small part of and watched you undergo with cookies is about an incredible level of gratitude. Who doesn't love getting a cookie and who doesn't love giving one? That was the whole thing. Liam eventually got to a point where he was cancer-free. We were so grateful. And as you know, there's a lot of kids who never achieve that. Kyle was one of them, yeah. They try and try and they don't achieve that. So he was cancer-free. I thought I could pretty much do anything. I wanted to help raise money for treatment that was in development. It was the next generation of a treatment that Kyle and Liam could have received. There was a bunch of parents who had committed to helping to raise that money. And there was parents doing all kinds of things like riding their bikes across the country and doing runs and marathons. And I am not a marathoner. I never will be. And I didn't want to ride a bike across the country because I didn't want to be away from my children. The holidays were coming up. Everybody during the holiday tends to be on the great find for a gift that has meaning and purpose, but also that the recipient is appreciative of and wants to receive. And who doesn't like getting fresh baked cookies during the holidays, especially if those cookies direct 100% of the of the proceeds to pediatric cancer research, it's a win-win. Yeah. You know, it's a good cookie for a good cause. So that's what started the whole thing. The next question was, how many cookies was I going to make? And that's when the, the PR side of me sort of started kicking into gear because I knew it, it, it needed to be a big number in order to get attention. At that point in time, I knew about 80 families whose kids were going through cancer treatment. I had read a story that the average Girl Scout sells 100 boxes. So when I did the math of 80 families times 100, that's 8,000. Okay, so I'm going to make 8,000 dozen cookies, and that is 96,000 cookies. <laughs> and it seemed at the time like a really reasonable thing to do because I had just rescued Liam from the grips of death yeah. trying to save him. And he was on the good side. He was going to make it. But there were kids who were still trying to get clean, Kyle being one of them. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to do everything we could as fast as we could do it to fund this new treatment. I said about making the 96,000, it was a lot harder than I thought, but we can get into that some other time. There, there's a second episode. Of course um, there is. Certainly at least one more. <laughs> <laughs> but it actually turned out, and I think that it, we were able to do it just by sheer 
perseverance and also because people heard the story and they were like, wait, what? They're baking 96,000 cookies to do what? Well, of course I'm going to get involved. Of course I'm going to volunteer. Of course I'm going to get the cookies. Mm -hmm. We wound up raising over $420,000. The reason I think that we raised that much is because people would hear the story. They would call us to order cookies and they would say, I don't need the cookies. I just want to make a donation. Keep up the good work. This is really amazing. And so we were able essentially to resell. There's people so many people just wanted to make a donation versus right. getting cookies. That's why we we're able to raise that much money. What that though taught me is that we had hit a nerve with people and come up with a way to talk about a really difficult topic without scaring people off. So that's what led to Cookies for Kids Cancer becoming a year-round organization. And for me, it was not about Liam. It was not about me. It's not about the kind of cancer that our sons battle. It's about the cause and giving people a place that they can come, that they can belong to, which is why the organization is not named after Liam or a child. And it's also why we support all kinds of pediatric cancers, because I've always felt, Jim, and I bet you feel the same way that while we hate the kind of cancer that took our sons, at the end of the day, the grief that we feel is no different than a parent who has lost a child to DIPG, Ewing sarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, osteosarcoma. And so my feeling was that we needed to fund the strongest science and not just say, no, we only want to fund the kind of cancer that our sons had because they all get the short end of the stick and they all need support. So Cookies for Kids Cancer today has had almost 17,000 grassroots events in all 50 states and 26 countries. We've granted more than $21 million. And there are now treatments, including the very first one that the 96,000 supported. There are now more than two dozen new treatments that kids are receiving because of help from grants that we have given. Which is kind of amazing when you sit back. And I, I go back to the time I met you at Sloan, and I was sitting there applying, much like you applied your communications and business background and the things you'd seen and learned, I was going through the same thing. I'm blessed to have a pretty significant network of wonderful friends, colleagues, former friends, former colleagues who I've had a chance to work with. And as I was going through this, trying to say, okay, well, how am I going to make a difference? My first inclination is to do what many kids, many parents of, of children who have cancer or any life-threatening disease, they start a foundation, they hold a golf tournament, they do all kinds of things, which is an approach to take. And I certainly would never sit in judgment of anyone that does any of those things. I think they're great. But the business mind in me said, well, that's a pretty fragmented approach to take to a problem that needs kind of an aligned, aggressive you, approach to, to attack a problem. Yeah, yeah, you need to. Yeah. You need to. Yeah. And that's when I was sitting there and I was, I think, talking to you and I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about starting this foundation and I don't know if it's worth it. And 
Then you had said, well, you can certainly join the efforts we have at Cookies. And I said, yeah, maybe that's something I can do. And well, let me let me learn more about it. Let me see if it connects to me and connects to Kyle. And the first thing you said, we'll definitely create a Kyle, a cookie for Kyle. And yeah. I remember saying to him, I said, what's your favorite cookie? And his is chocolate chip. It always was. And yeah, he said, well, I would love to have a chocolate chip cookie in my name, dad. That yeah. would be great. And yeah. if it can help other kids, then that's even better. So lo and behold, as, as the audience kind of processes through probably the emotional roller coaster they're going along with us as they listen to this podcast or watch it, this is how you can apply what makes you you, which is kind of just this collection of life experiences that you have, I believe, into getting through these most challenging things. Because it's not likely that you're going to find like some newfangled way to get through the worst thing. You're, you're probably going to draw upon something that you've had experience with in your life and apply it as such to get through that particular moment and challenge. I often thought about, man, if I would have created Kyle's cookies or Kyle's cupcakes or Kyle's gear or whatever, would it, would I now be where I am? Certainly probably not. I wouldn't have the relationship I have with you. I wouldn't have the relationship I've had with others that I've brought to the cookies mission or opportunities <laughs> I had to work. I do think what our children ended up inspiring is is pretty amazing. I think it goes beyond what we do, and this is incredibly sad. I also think it would be some of what Kyle would have done had he had a chance to live his life. I think he would have been the kind of person who would look for ways to give rather than get. I think he would have been the kind of person that showed a level of service of something larger than himself. Yeah. Which are things I've tried to do, I aspire to. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. I often think about the lessons he taught me as a five and six-year-old boy. And I think when you become a parent, your children are teaching you from the second they're born, and maybe even prior to their being born. And they start to kind of direct you. At least that's what happened with Kyle. And now Summer, his sister, who never had a chance to meet him and was adopted less than a year after Kyle passed, but he always wanted a little sister. And you think about what that desire in him inspired, right? Then we're presented with the opportunity to adopt a girl mm -hmm. from someone we never met through a mm -hmm. phone call and a connection to someone we inspired to become a make-a-wish grantor who then had this cousin who was going to have a baby who she didn't think she was going to have. And seven weeks before summer's to be born, we get a call saying, hey, we saw on your CaringBridge site that you might be interested in adopting a child. So you kind of think about how these things happen. And of course, the business person in me was born out of that, too. It's like, okay, so I have seven weeks to get an adoption done. Huh, this usually takes years, but I think I can get it done in weeks. <laughs> so, you know, you just put your head down and you just go do it because you really have no choice, right? And now she's going to be 12 in a few weeks, and it's just astonishing it's to think amazing. about what happened. It is. Amazing. How do you talk about the future of cookies? You alluded to some of what cookies does. And just for the audience's sake, one of the other things that really attracted me to cookies is that I and correct me and I know you will. Our intent is to fund researchers. It's to fund those that are at the cutting edge, the tipping point, whatever you want, the tip of the spear, blah, blah, blah. We are like funding those people which Absolutely. is such an, I believe, an innovative way to go after this challenge, right? There's 
My friends at Best Buy do an amazing job at St. Jude every year, and they've raised literally, with the support of their customers, tens and tens of millions. Maybe at this point, it's more than $100 million they've raised, and it goes into the St. Jude bucket, and the St. Jude bucket is really, really important. I never would say our bucket's more important than their bucket, but our bucket is very different. Maybe you can share a little bit about how you came to that kind of strategy of, of deploying the resources that we're able to gather from people who hold grassroots bake sales or some of our big events that we have every year. A couple of things. One, St. Jude is one of our partner centers. The grant letters just went out and the grants, the 2023 grants were just funded. I think on December 30th, they were funded. One of them, an amazing researcher named Dr. Elizabeth Stewart is the one from St. Jude who won this year. And she's just so gracious and so lovely. And she's also a marathon runner, unlike you. I have to give all the credit to my husband because while baking the cookies was one of my harebrained ideas that worked out, which I, it wasn't harebrained. Look, it was very intentional. I, I had a feeling I, I wanted to do something. I didn't want to climb Mount Everest. I wanted to stay close. And I, and I wanted to try to do something that, that could potentially get attention. Mm-hmm. So that was the whole 96,000 thing. But then when we realized that there was, there was something more that was here, my husband spent a lot of time reaching out to experts in the field of pediatric cancer saying, what do we need to do to be effective? What do we need to do to cut through the red tape? What do we need to do to get the hands and the people who can make a difference in the shortest period of time possible? And he talked to lots of different people, people at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, to the leading pediatric cancer hospitals across the country, and really gathered information. That's when we came up with the concept of you should have partner centers that get your funding. The reason why you should have these partner centers is because the vast majority of advances in pediatric cancer happen at a a core group of hospitals. The reason why they happen there is that these are the hospitals with the strongest infrastructure and the support network that they need in order to make those advances. And so we wanted to back the winners. We wanted to back the hospitals that are really on that cutting edge of discovering what the next advancement is and then are able to get those discoveries in the form of treatments that then become available at hospitals across the country. That's how we made the decision to have partner centers. Then it kind of came to what kind of research were we going to fund? And it was always really important to me and my husband that it was not, we didn't want to make this about Liam's kind of cancer. We wanted to make this about funding the strongest science Mm -hmm. and the strongest science was the most important thing for us because we wanted to fund science that had the best chance of helping a kid in the shortest period of time possible. So then it was like, okay, so how do you know if you're funding the strongest science? I'm not a scientist. You're not a scientist. You're like, <laughs> what do you figure that out? And that's what led to realizing that we needed a separate medical advisory board that are scientists who could review the grant requests that 
we are receiving and also use the same criteria that the National Cancer Institute uses to evaluate those grant requests so that we could then know that we were funding the strongest science. So they actually meet separately from anybody on the team of cookies. We don't even see the grant requests before they come in. They get together and they do a double blind peer review. So two people on the medical advisory board will be reviewing the same project. Then they come back and they meet together as a group. And then they use the same voting criteria that the National Cancer Institute uses to evaluate and vote on each one of the grant requests. That's how that whole thing happens. And I think that it's because we do it that way. And there's this separation between us raising the money and them deciding what the strongest science is and us not influencing that at all, that they have been so effective and so many of the grants that we have funded. And we tend to fund that unsexy early work. People on the, I'm taking the football across the line kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, like I'm Travis Kelsey catching the ball and I'm taking it across the line. And while that's certainly exciting, you got to dial it back a little bit because if you can't, like, you've got to make those, you've got to fund that early research, which tends to be the research that is hard to get funding for, but that's the stuff that you need to fund to make sure that you can make that play at the end. And so we tend to fund the earlier research that then once once those early things are discovered, then they can go on to receive more research um, grants. If you can't get past the f- first few steps, then you're, the, the purse is never going to open up right. to get more funding from the NCI or from other foundations or that kind of thing. The other thing that I wanted to mentioned, which I think is really important, is that if you, as a scientist, submit a grant request to the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, it can take up to two years for the check to be written. Two years. Hmm. Kyle didn't have two years. Liam didn't have two years. With us, it's about 90 days, give or take. You know that? And I know that days and weeks count. Well, no doubt. I mean, I just think that I remember as I got more involved in this and served on the board actively and then took a little bit of a step back, but always stayed connected to you and what Cookies was working on and would always, I mean, I have friends who always order Cookies as a tribute to Kyle and and the mission that Cookies stands for and is trying to deliver against. And I can remember talking to really intelligent business people about our approach and just how innovative It is in the world of charitable giving. And thankfully, we do live in a country and in a world in a lot of ways that is incredibly giving, that is willing to help others who are in need. I think one of the questions people always ask is, man, is this going to the right place? Is this going to the right work? And that's what I think is so inspiring about the cookies approach. And I always felt like it was a true differentiator. Like if I had $100 that I was going to give to a charity every year, what where would I want to give it? Well, I'd want to give it to where it's most targeted, most innovative, and most likely to do the most good. Right. And that's right. what it feels like to me. Cookies has been able to accomplish in a very messy charity world that we live in. 
we do the legwork to make sure that that $100 donation is going to a place where it's going to do the most good. Yeah. And that was also one of the reasons why we fund more than one hospital. And that was something that all of the researchers who we talked with said, you can't fund one hospital. You need to fund more than one because you want them to be giving you their best ideas yeah, and their strongest ideas. And so it was not, it was not us who had that idea to only to fund a group of hospitals. Um, it was, it was actually, that was, that's what the researchers told us to do. Now, the other thing, I don't know if you remember this, but early on in the organization's history, we had more money to give than there were grants that had been approved. Mm. And that's when we started funding the children's oncology groups, HEP CTN projects. So the children's oncology group pediatric early phase clinical trial network. It's a mouthful. So basically <laughs> here's why it's important. PEPCTN are the phase one treatments that are available at around 40 hospitals, maybe 39, 42, something like that. Hospitals across the country and actually around the world that are doing the phase one treatments that are really truly the cutting edge treatments we match, match what the federal government gives for every child enrolled in the PEPCTN. Now, that to your listeners might be like, oh, phase one, that's scary. Like, why would you ever want a kid to go through a phase one? You and I both know that most treatments that kids deal with are phase one or phase two. And the reason is that most of the treatments that kids receive, the reason why something goes from phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, and then FDA approval is because there's a, a therapy or a, a drug that is being developed that will then be marketed for wide scale use. Well, there's not a market necessarily for yeah. kids drugs. And so Kyle and Liam only ever received a phase one or a phase two treatment. And so funding the PEPCTN project and matching what the federal government gives for every kid enrolled is essentially giving more kids access to those cutting edge treatments. It really is. When I listen to you describe all of this and we're not doctors and not scientists by any stretch, but I just, I think sometimes of how much I know, and I probably know a 10th of what you know about pediatric cancer and the ways and means at which it's being attacked, addressed, whichever term you want to use. It's amazing how smart you can get at things that you knew absolutely nothing about when you put your mind to it, when you decide that this is how you're going to really serve something larger than yourself. And the cookies mission has certainly become that for you. I mean, I've just had a chance to watch and play a small part in you and how you go about this. In the last 10 minutes or so that we have, I'd love for you to share like what you see the future of cookies being. If you were thinking about a strategic approach to take based upon everything you know and everything you've learned thus far, what do you hope the next number of years looks like for cookies? Oh gosh, the pandemic was tough. Yeah. About a third 
of all nonprofits in the U.S. And there's something like 1.8 million registered 501c3s in the U.S. close their doors. Being able to successfully navigate that and come through on the other end is nothing short of a miracle, quite frankly, especially for an organization like ours that relies so much on community-based events, people Mm -hmm. having bake sale, people having a bowling tournament, people having getting together as a community and gathering. And when you were practicing social distancing, that was really difficult. Plus, we also couldn't have large scale events, which is a huge source of revenue for us as well. For us, the future now, I feel like in a way, we're back to 2019. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, where are we going now? The next goal is let's let's get to 10 million and then keep keep moving forward my hope we had the the most amazing group of grants that we funded this year and we changed our granting structure just a little, little bit this year where we made our grants three year grants so years 1 and 2 are guaranteed year 3 requires a progress report to show how you would use the funding for year 3 in order to justify it But we had the strongest group of grant recipients. And I think that the reason is because we're guaranteeing, like, you're not going to have to struggle to find the money after year one. We're going to be here for you for three years. So for me, the future is twofold. I'd love to make those grants larger. Every time you can make that grant larger, that's great. With that said, I think that it takes a surprisingly small amount of money to make a difference. Our grants originally were $100,000. They are still $100,000 a year. Now it's up to three years. And believe it or not, it's that $100,000 mark that makes a huge difference in being able to see a project moving forward. And, And I think it's important to mention that because we tend to think that it requires tens of millions of dollars to make a difference, Mm -hmm. right? Therefore, most of us tend to get turned off by the concept of getting involved because what is it that one person can do to make a difference? And when you learn that it's $100,000 that is that magic number to get a project like moving forward, well, shoot, you and I know enough people that we can gather them together yeah. and we can do car washes and bake sales and all kinds of other things to, to try and raise that money. But the fact is that it's making a, a discernible difference in lives of kids. I mean, Kyle and Liam would now be in college, college yeah. and there are now kids who were in treatment with Kyle and Liam who have now received not one, not two, but three treatments that Cookies has helped to fund who are now in college. Mm-hmm. That's crazy, Jim. Yeah, it is. That's crazy. It is. And you think about as I look at Cookies and I so appreciate you being on today and walking me and the audience through the journey of Cookies and how our lives have intersected and continue to intersect as we move ahead. But the the annual events, the one that was just recently done in New York City, it's just such an amazing collection of amazing people driven by the chef community, Chefs for Kids, that is really phenomenal. And I think about some of the corporate sponsors that you've been able to put together over time. And and my chance last summer, I think, to go and meet the best fundraisers in, in Denny's network 
for Cookies for Kids Cancer, which was, I mean, you're talking about grassroots of grassroots, right? What's more grassroots than a Denny's restaurant in small town USA? I mean, you've got like this variation from the grassest of grassroots to big corporate sponsors like our friends at Best Buy who provided us with the stoves we needed this year or DeLonghi is another one or Denny's, these big corporate, I hate to call them these big corporate monsters who are helping. And then you've got the mom who got connected, who has a bake sale because her, her daughter has a friend of a friend who was afflicted with cancer. Is that still in your mind, the path forward where you've got that kind of diversity of engagement between the small bake sale happening at the grassroots and the big corporate sponsors? You don't see a path that go takes us away from that because it seems to be pretty darn effective. I feel like that is really, truly the heart and soul. And whether it's the mom who has a friend of a friend of a friend who knows a kid who's going through cancer treatment, or it's Best Buy stepping in to be a hero and provide the cooking equipment appliances so that the chef event can be a success to Denny's across the country having a month of fundraising. There's one word that comes to mind when I think about all those, and it's the greater good and being part of a community. And it was really important to me that no matter who you are, what age you are, where you lived, what time of year it was, that there was a way for everybody to get involved because there is nobody, whether it's a corporate giant or whether it's an an individual person who doesn't want to feel like their effort counts and that their effort is making a difference. That's what's so beautiful is a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. And they all spend the same way. (laughs) I'm always so humbled when you see somebody getting involved and saying, yes, I want to help make a difference, whether it is a corporate giant or whether it's it's Daniela Ortiz in Loveland, Colorado, who has been having bake sales for so many years and is now in 10th grade and has raised over $100,000. It's absolutely amazing. And even in in your community where you live, I want to call him a little boy, but he's not a little boy anymore, who's now a senior in high school and he knows where he's going to college and he has relapsed three times from stage four neuroblastoma. But today he's doing great and he's received four treatments. Jim, you and I and the legacy of Cookies for Kids Cancer has helped to create. And think about why we, why it resonated with you and why this whole thing happened. And it happened for one reason and one reason only. And that is because you had a little boy named Kyle. I have a little boy named Liam who we loved more than anything. But you and I both know that Kyle and Liam would want us to make it better for others. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I know that about Kyle, which is why, even though this is not the easiest thing to do, this is not easy stuff. But at the end of the day, I know that I'm going to see Liam again. I just know it. There's too many things that have happened that that would lead me to think anything other than he and I are going to reunite. And I suspect that you feel the same way. Absolutely. That the very first question 
that Liam will ask me is, did you make it better for other kids? Because what he went through was hell. What Kyle went through was hell. And the only way that I can get through the life that has been given to me to live is knowing that I, I feel like all I'm doing is living out Liam's mission of helping to make it better for other kids. Well, Gretchen, this has been an amazing conversation as I knew it would be. And I want to put a little plug out there for those of you listening. And I hope those of you that listen to the podcast, send it to your friends and neighbors to listen to, because we have some amazing people like Gretchen on to talk about their getting through moments. And when we were chatting a little bit before the episode and even during I get asked all the time, Jim, how'd you come up with getting through and why getting through and what does it really mean? And I think, Gretchen, as you said so many times during this episode, it's like, I'm just trying to get through the, le- the next five minutes. I often use Tony Robbins as my comparison because I always see Tony Robbins as this larger than life motivational person who has you walk across hot coals to realize your dreams. And yeah. I'm not trying to walk across hot coals. I'm just trying to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> like I'm just, and if yeah. I'm, and I think I'm like most people, I think most people are not trying to live this life of greatness, perhaps. And Lewis Haves is a great podcaster and great thinker and does amazing things. But the school of greatness, I'm like the school of getting through, like, just let me get through this tough conversation I'm about to have with my spouse. This really difficult medical, Leslie's going to be going through surgery in a couple of weeks. Like I got to get through these things. And what are the things that I can do to get through those moments? And during our time together, so much of what inspired me to be here is what Kyle taught me as a five and six year old, like dad, faith and belief matter. Showing empathy and care and compassion for others matters being resilient. During his treatment, he almost died two or three times. And he just kept coming back. And that's why, as you said earlier, I always believe, and I know you believed, as you said, that Liam and Kyle were going to get through this. They were going to survive this because they showed an amazing level of resiliency and gratitude and service of something larger than yourself. As I said, I would love for people to go to cookiesforkidscancer.org and get involved, make a difference as we like to say, be a good cookie. I love that marketing line because everybody wants to be a good cookie. Everybody wants to taste a good cookie and everybody wants to be one. We have some really big kind of moments, inflection moments here coming up for getting through. My book is going to be coming out in a couple months. The pre-orders will be available. And honestly, Gretchen, I don't know how many copies I'm going to sell. I keep moving forward with this one kind of thought process that keeps me centered And I just want to help one person. If one person listens to this podcast that you forwarded to or I forwarded to or happens to come across it on Spotify and listen to it and said, man, if those two could get through what they got through, they don't seem that special. Well, me, I'm not that special. You are. They're just regular people that found themselves in the most difficult of circumstances. I mean, when I tell people my life story, they're always like, oh, shit, I don't think I could ever get through that. That's usually the line they have. I don't think I could get through that. And I'm like, you'd be surprised what you can get through. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, look, why do we get through it? We get through it because we had amazing children who taught us so much. And how often is it that you can say that the greatest lessons that I've learned in life were from a five five and a six-year-old? 
Yes, yes, indeed. Well, Gretchen, it has been incredible to have you on today. And yes, you will be coming back for another episode as we share the wonderful journey of Cookies for Kids Cancer as we move forward. Please, everyone who listens to this podcast, send it along to your friends, colleagues, those that you think it can help make a difference. We'd love to expand our audience in the weeks and months ahead. Gretchen, thank you. Love to you and the family. And we'll see you again soon. Same to you. Thank you, Jim. Bye-bye. Bye.